0: In his new memoir, Spare, Prince Harry has a lot to say. You've probably seen the headlines and memes about the revelations the Duke of Sussex is making in his book. He covers his tours in Afghanistan, his rocky relationship with his brother William, and his marriage to Meghan Markle. Not to mention tripping on mushrooms and the time he got frostbite on his penis. But overall, the book is a revealing look into the royal family and the invisible network of courtiers, staff, tabloid journalists, and lesser royals that keeps it in power. It's been incredibly popular. Libraries here in the U.S. are struggling to meet demand, with months-long wait times for a copy. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. After the break, what's behind the enduring fascination Americans have with the royal family? And what does the future of the British monarchy look like?
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because Smartwool believes that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. Comfort for the extreme and the easygoing. SmartWool is here to help you feel good. Now it's up to you how far you will go. SmartWool, go far, feel good.
0: All right, we've got a great panel to discuss the royal family and more. First, Patty O'Connell is a host at the BBC and he joins us from London. Patty, welcome.
2: Sarah, hello, and the WAMU family.
0: Thank you. Also with us is Constance Grady. She's a senior reporter at Vox covering culture. Constance, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. And Kristen Meinzer. She's the host of Royal Report from Newsweek. Kristen, welcome. Thanks so much for having me back. Constance, we'll get into the details about the royal family Prince Harry reveals in his new memoir, Spare. But to start, what did you think of the book?
3: You know, I thought it was a much more interesting book than I was afraid it would be. Um, Harry and Meghan have, by this point, told their story a few times. We saw the Oprah interview a couple of years ago and then their Netflix show this fall. And it sort of felt like we were faced with diminishing returns. Um, but his book, Spare, is a lot weirder and more interesting than I think a lot of people expected. Um, He's not just telling stories about, you know, his run-ins with the tabloid press and his beloved mother, although those both feature highly, but he's also telling us stories about going shopping at T.K. Maxx, which is the, the British equivalent of T.J. Maxx with his $200 clothing budget and then going home and watching Friends and identifying with Chandler. It's this very bizarre oddly relatable account of what it's like to be royal.
0: And Kristen, you know, of course, this memoir gives us lots of sort of gritty, granular detail, but is there anything really new, materially new information in it?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, he he definitely points fingers, uh, spills the beans on certain stories that maybe we've heard a little bit about here or there, or maybe the tabloid press reported it this way, but he actually gives a lot more details on certain stories that we've heard about. For example, the Megan made Kate cry story. No, it was Kate who made Megan cry story. What was the real story there? He also gives details about certain stories that were leaked by Charles and Camilla, or I should say their team, because it's never the family members, it's their teams. Oh, sorry, son, it wasn't me. It was my team that leaked that story. And he also lays out what I consider a very cohesive and very convincing thesis about Why he wanted to escape the tabloid press from the time he is a very young boy being chased in the car and his mother crying and trying to outrun the press from a very young age to having his relationships destroyed to... His first you know, sexual encounter, the fear that maybe he was photographed during that, and you know, all the way up to the present, feeling as if uh, he was stalked, he was invaded, and not just feeling that way, laying out the case that he actually was. So I do think that he has a very tight case that he lays out in his book for his grievances, which are are very valid.
0: On that question, one listener tweets, I got the book on Audible. It was a good listen. A large part of what he talks about has nothing to do with the rift over Meghan. The only major revelation was the fight between himself and William, fairly respectful of most of his family. You know, Patty, you're in the UK. How has the British public reacted to Harry's book and the interviews he's been giving so far?
2: Well, welcome to a polarized UK. So (laughs) for various reasons we have a culture war that's recognisable to Americans. We've always liked to blame many of our biggest problems on the Americans, Uh, and in the case of the royal family, this evokes several fault lines. Your obsession with celebrity, you can't let us go, as Hamilton, the great musical, made fun of as well. You know, you'll be back. So basically, you're back, you guys. You can't get over us, and you're eating this up, and you have a different view to us broadly speaking. The older British reader backs the royal family. The younger American reader backs Meghan. So it's Wallace Simpson all over again. But I agree with your two very expert uh, companions today. It's significant. There are revelations. And I'm certainly not here to say this is uh, frivolous. It's a very important moment for the UK, but it does shine a light on some fabulous truths. What makes the British and Americans different? What is celebrity? And what is the difference between the head of state? That's the monarchy and the royal family. They're all the people who are spares. They always were spares before they were born. And that's one of the intriguing things. Harry didn't seem to have been given a rule book.
0: I've got to ask you quickly, Patty, on that note. Not that you can speak for every every person in the UK, but wh- what do British people make of the American fascination with, with their royalty?
2: Well, I mean, I am uh, biased because I am one of the biggest fans of America in Europe. I often worry I'm the only fan. Um, <laughs> I-, I lived there. I was there the night in New York. I was the Wall Street correspondent the, the night Diana died. And I, I got on a plane. I came back to my country. I was so affected. And I flew with American friends. So I'm not scornful of the United States. I love Americans. But you guys, why are you so obsessed with our royal family? What does that say about you? I mean, I'm not American, but you're mainlining.
0: (laughs) It's funny. We're hearing from some of our listeners, and, and some actually kind of are on your team there. Jennifer emails about the book. It's a great read so far. I bought it to better understand his, meaning Harry's, manner of living and growing up. But we got this email from another listener. Frankly, I'm tired of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle rehashing their story. Claims of family dysfunction is not new, and it was clearly evident in the royal family when... Harry's mother was alive. Moreover, they claim they want their story known, but they just want to talk. They just want to talk to keep themselves relevant otherwise they could not live as lavishly as they do. So there's some skepticism here. Meanwhile, the Duke of Sussex has been on a media tour here in the States. Here he is speaking with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes.
1: There have been briefings and leakings and planting of stories against me and my wife. You know, the family motto is never complain, never explain, but it's just a motto and it doesn't really hold. There's a lot of
3: complaining and a lot of explaining.
1: And private
2: being done in through leaks.
1: Through leaks. They will feed or have a conversation with the correspondent and that correspondent will literally be spoon fed information and write the story and then the bottom of it, they will say that they've reached out to Buckingham Palace for comment. Hmm. But the whole story is Buckingham Palace commenting. So when we're being told for the last six years, we can't put a statement out to protect you, but you do it for other members of the family, There becomes a point when silence
2: is betrayal.
0: Okay, so Christine emails, personally, I'm so tired of hearing about Harry's problems. What's the fascination about all this? Don't we have enough problems in our own country and the world in general? Kristen, I wonder if you could respond to that.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean... I always say that the British Royals are the longest running reality show family in the world. This has been a thousand years of marriages, divorces, beheadings, uh, and It's hard to look away because this is a mix of celebrity, of history, of fairy tale. On top of all of that, they're essentially the grandparents of our nation here in the U.S. And so it's a confluence of, you know, all these different things that hold our attention. And then on top of that, they also reflect our values to a certain extent. The British royal family essentially is a PR agency for what it means to be British. They are a tourist attraction. They are um, a, a group of people who have mingled with the U.S. in huge ways and in small ways. Let's not forget that Princess Diana's great-grandmother was essentially a dollar bride. She was an American. Uh, Multiple members of the royal family have dated and or married Americans. So it's not just that they live separately from us. It's that we kind of cross-pollinate, that we kind of speak to each other's values. So it makes sense to me that, of course, we're fascinated with them.
0: We got this message from Malcolm in Shelbyville.
2: It came to my mind that really, technically, uh, America is really long-lost cousins of British society, so it makes sense that we would be obsessed with um, some family members that we haven't uh, seen or talked to in a while, Um, but obviously, there is just a a continued fascination
0: with a world um, that we have been torn apart from for centuries which really goes to the point Kristen was just making. Constance, I wonder how you react to Malcolm's message. Where does this fascination we're talking about come from?
3: Yeah, I think that a lot of the American fascination with the British royal family comes from the fact that there is this perfect amount of distance. You know, we are, as Malcolm says, long lost cousins. We speak the same language. We can sort of understand the gist of what's happening in the UK, even if we're missing some of the subtleties. But also, these people are not our head of state, right? We're able to enjoy the scandals and this sort of romance of the idea of a princess in a castle in a beautiful fairy tale gown. And also not have to deal with any ambivalence about knowing that, you know, our taxes are going to support this family, and if we met them, we would be expected to bow. Um, there's this sense that they can be a way of luxuriating in the ideal of a fairy tale without having to necessarily deal with the, uh, the downsides of a monarchy in our real lives.
0: You know, one of the big themes of this book is sort of the relationship between the royals and the press and the public. We hear in that clip a moment ago, we heard Harry criticizing the royal family for not defending him in the press. Um, But he also writes about the, the press itself. Patty, how is the British press reacting to Harry and Meghan speaking out about how they've been portrayed over the years?
2: Well, they don't like it. And many of them are being sued by uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, and they have had some victory in the UK court. So that is definitely in play. The UK press hates to be criticised and loves to criticise. So it's a massive part of the story. And I think, judged as I am as a journalist who's lived in your country and in mine, I think this probably is the point where the public interest comes most to, to the fore, because... This is kind of revelations about a family. And as I've earlier said, you know, our, head is, our system is a monarchy. That's what it is. Ha- Harry could have come to me and I'd have said, there's a guy who inherits the crown and there's a guy who isn't. It kind of happened like that for 2,000 years. If, if you need any more help, Harry, ring me up. So that bit of it, I think, you know, inevitably I'm not surprised by. But his life pursued by the press. I grew up with this boy. He followed his mother's coffin in front of my TV screen. He's allowed to level these criticisms. He's allowed to tell us of the trauma. And it is significant. And it's not for me as a British journalist to say this is, a, this is superficial. This is worth shining a light on our country. But the thing I would love to say, because I love America, is you had an insurrection led on your Congress when you validated the vote of your election. That's an issue. This is one brother pushing a brother into a dog bowl. I'd rather worry about my stuff than yours.
0: Fair enough. You know, Kristen, uh, Harry and Megan obviously have decided to live in the U.S. They, this trauma that Patty references is significant enough. They did not want to stay uh, in the U.K., What has it meant for sort of the relationship between Americans and the royals to have Harry and Meghan here in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, well, I think that a lot of Americans, especially when Harry and Meghan were first courting, I I think there was a lot of hope, and and not just in America, across the Commonwealth, um, across uh, many communities in the U.K., there was this moment of hope of, oh, my gosh, the royal family is going to look a little bit more like the rest of us. And this is America's princess. She is one of our own. And uh, I think a lot of people, when things went south, felt that was a really missed opportunity. The royal family could have modernized, they could have spoken to a younger generation and that they blew it. And, you know, I understand the never complain, never explain thing, but as we heard in that clip there, they do regularly complain and they do regularly explain they do it through staff leaks and sometimes they do it on the record and you know harry and megan are not the first people to give primetime interviews they're not the first people in the royal family to file lawsuits Many members have. Lest we forget, uh, Prince Charles had his tell-all that he collaborated on with Jonathan Dimbledy, plus a primetime interview to go with it back in the day. Uh, We all know Diana did as well. Many, many members of the royal family have done this. And so I think a lot of Americans look at the vitriol being thrown at Meghan and think, A, missed opportunity, as I said, and B, how much of this is because of xenophobia how much of this is because of racism how much of this is because of classism and snootiness and um, it's hard not to feel that these attacks on Megan in particular are unfair and to see them play out again and again and again for example um, just you know a couple of weeks ago in the sun the you know I, I don't know if I'd call it an editorial or a comedy piece or whatever you would want to call it, by Jeremy Clarkson, which essentially called for stripping Megan naked and marching her through the streets while people throw feces at her and call her names. I mean, it just proves the point that she is not being treated fairly by the UK British press and that the royals have not leaked anything or publicly stated anything to um, uh, speak out against that. So I, it, it's hard not to look at this situation and think, they could have done better. The British press could have done better. The British royal family could have done better.
0: Catherine tweets My fascination with the Harry and Meghan saga is due to my love for a great underdog story. As an American, how can I not support and root for the biracial yoga teacher's daughter and her prince against a racist thousand year old monarchy and a vicious press? We also got this tweet. I read the book over the weekend, not much change in my feelings toward the royal family, but I was alarmed at the power the courtiers have. Also, I feel empathy should not be limited to only the needy. We'll hear more from you and from our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation on Prince Harry and the royal family. Constance, uh, let's get into the contents of Prince Harry's new book a little bit more. Harry lists but avoids naming three palace officials who he says handled his and Meghan's dealings during their time as royals. He also says they handled his decision to withdraw from public duties in 2020. So, Constance, according to Harry, how does the royal family
3: operate? Yeah, this is one of the things that is one of Harry's biggest grievances, essentially, He argues that these officials, these courtiers, essentially allow the rest of the family plausible deniability, but that they also sometimes manage things for their own best interests. Um, At some points, he suggests that he thinks they're manipulating uh, the queen, who is then on the throne and has since passed, um, and sort of considering themselves to be the true monarch rather than her. According to Harry, the courtiers are trading secrets about himself and his wife in order to protect those who are closer to the throne than he is. So William and Kate, Charles and Camilla, and the Queen herself. Um, And he also thinks that they are blocking his access to the Queen when he wants to meet with her to discuss his plans to step back from the royal family. Um, So there's this sort of uh, mushiness here where he's able to blame these courtiers for these, what he sees as betrayals of himself, essentially. Um, But he's also very, very angry at his family for allowing the courtiers to make those betrayals. And that ambivalence is sort of the emotional core of the book in a lot of ways.
0: Kristen, help me understand this. I mean, all of this palace intrigue is, I'll admit, a little lost on me. I couldn't have told you much about what courtiers do without, you know, before this discussion. But what's their motivation? I mean, if if this is true, what Harry says, what is the motivation for, you know, protecting certain more prominent royals over others? Is it just because it's their job or are they intensely loyal for some reason? What's going on there?
1: Well, it is their job to protect the house that they work for, the House of Sussex, the House of Windsor, the House of Cambridge, et cetera, um, to... Um, protect and put forth a certain image for those that they serve and also to stay relevant. And also I am guessing to enjoy what power they have. And I I will point out that, uh, you know, there there are a few names here that are named. For example, Prince Harry mentions Angela Kelly a few times in the book and says he doesn't really trust her. She is somebody who is very crafty, very good at playing the game with the press. She was the queen's dresser and, um, you know, would uh, make sure that certain bits and pieces were put out there to maybe draw attention away from certain things that were happening with the Queen, draw attention to other things. And in the case of Camilla and Charles, you know, Harry makes it clear that they are more guilty than anyone else. Growing up, he and uh, Harry and William actually said to each other, we're not going to do ever to each other what, you know, Dad and Camilla have done to us. We're not going to throw you know, each other under the bus. We're not going to let a story be published as dad did saying that I'm a drug addict because it made him look better. It made dad look like, oh, I'm a I'm a harried single dad and I'm just doing the best I can with my out-of-control son. Um, you know, the parents, uh, Charles and Camilla, they did this repeatedly to Harry uh, just to draw attention away from themselves because, you know, I, I'm sure we all remember this, Camilla and Charles's relationship was not initially... Uh, high in the approval ratings. A lot of people thought about Camilla as a homewrecker. They didn't think of her as the future queen. And so, you know, to throw your own children under the bus, or I should say to have your PR team, your courtiers do that, um, you know, there's understandably on Harry's part, a lot of unhappiness about that whole system, especially considering that eventually William started playing the game too.
0: Yeah, quickly, Kristen, I want to ask you about that. I mean, he does write about his relationship with his brother, William, Um, kind of a complicated one. What did we learn?
1: Yeah, we learned that, you know, even though these two brothers love each other very much and, uh, you know, they've gone through a lot together, we all know the traumas that they have seen together that, you know— he, that Harry has always been the spare. And even when they were schoolboys, you know, William, as an older brother, was like, pretend that you don't know me when they're in school. And, You know, William's trying to live his own life and didn't always want his younger brother tagging along. And he at times felt jealous of Harry. For example, when Harry was getting married, the Queen said, go ahead and keep your beard. You can wear your military uniform and a beard at the same time when you get married. William wasn't allowed that option from the Queen and then tried to order Carry around and say, I am ordering you not to have a beard when you get married because I wasn't allowed to have one. So sometimes it was quite petty and sometimes it was quite serious and physical. Um, we know about the physical altercation where uh, it's all you know been aired in the press where William actually tackled Harry to the ground, broke a dog bowl underneath his back, left injuries on his back that were visible that Megan saw later, and then told Harry, don't tell Megan about this. Uh, we know that uh, Harry loved Kate, but that Kate did not love Megan. that William did not love Megan. that there were all sorts of clashes there that I would say some of them, I, I, I think, sound harmless to me as an American, but maybe if you're in the aristocracy in the UK, you would think, oh, Megan was being too familiar. She did things like hug William and William recoiled at that or, you know, mentioned at one point, oh, I have some homeopathic medicines. You're coughing a lot. Do you want to try those? And Kate was very offended by that. Uh, William would never take those drugs. And um, so there were certain things there where I thought, oh, some of this might just be, we have a California actress here dealing with people who are UK aristocracy and Uh, these culture clashes just snowballed into something that was much bigger than a culture clash here or there. Um, I I would say it's uh, a a case of if they actually got along, these things would be accepted for just differences, but they weren't differences. They were reason for acrimonious fights uh, for splitting up their households and so on.
0: Yeah, one listener tweets kind of on that note, what is the importance of childhood trauma and systemic racism in this history? Constance, I wonder if you have some thoughts there.
3: Yeah, I think this is a really, really major part of the book and part of what um, makes it so effective. I should say that Harry is working here with um, a Pulitzer-winning ghostwriter, J.R. Moringer, who also worked uh, with Andre Agassi on his memoir, Open. He sort of specializes in fraught familial relationships. Um, And what Moringer and Harry together have sort of suggested is that the root trauma of this whole story is first of all the death of princess diana in 1997 when harry was 12 years old and then seeing having and then being forced as harry was to walk behind her coffin in front of the world while the press who he blamed for her death Endlessly photographed him. Um, one of the things he says is that he was only able to cry when her body was interred, where and the press was not present, they were alone, and he felt incredibly ashamed that he had cried and sort of betrayed the family ethos, but that. At least in this case, it was okay because the press wasn't there to see him. And then after that, he seems to have convinced himself that Diana was secretly still alive, that she was in hiding from the press that had hounded her and tormented her, and that eventually one day she would come back for him. Um, And this is a sort of magical thinking that he carries with him into his adulthood, into his 20s, and he isn't able to cry about her death until he's into his 30s. Um, So there's this really, really deep well of trauma that is sort of at the heart of this book and clearly affects the way that he has approached the world ever since then. I think he is a little less nuanced and aware when it comes to the issue of systemic racism, but he talks a lot about how he was taken by surprise, at how racist the coverage was when his relationship with Meghan Markle first went public. there are those sort of infamous headlines, like "Harry's girl is almost straight out of Concton, calling her gangster royalty." Um, and he, seems to have been quite shocked and almost naive in his attitude towards racism in the British press. And that's one of the things that now fuels his animosity, this sense that first they hounded his mother to her death, next they destroyed his childhood, and finally they were racist and bigoted towards his eventual wife.
0: Harry writes about uncovering paparazzi photos taken of his mother in her final moments and about the moment that his father informed him of Princess Diana's death. Patty, how else does Diana show up in this book and how important is sort of the theme of that relationship?
2: Well, I think she shows up in every page as his mother because, of course, I was around when Diana came on the scene and she was revolutionary. It was not a a, a racial issue. It wasn't a color issue. It wasn't an American issue. It was that she was so unusual. She went in to meet people dying with AIDS and embraced them. I mean, that is free of race. That is the sort of shock that she did. She went into minefields. She emoted. She embraced her children. So Harry comes out at his mother's son, and he should be very proud of that, you know, because every child should feel the best things of their parents. And I suppose also... The other way is that Diana was a complete um, victim of the British press. She was pursued to her very end. And to the point earlier about courtiers, you know, you guys have these. You don't call them courtiers, but you have celebrity assistants. That's what huge numbers of people are employed to do in your country, in New York, in Washington, where you have political assistants, and in Hollywood, where you have celebrity assistants. And I'll give you an example. You can call it courtiers, but I'm calling it uh, assistance. So what? one thing the British press did, imagine that I am Kristen's brother. So Kristen and I are brother and sister. Kristen tells me something that only she's only told me and she's left that message on my voicemail, but she's only told me and I'm her brother. The British press a decade or so ago hacked the phone messages of people. So in this case, it's me. They hear Kristen's message. She's only told me. So Kristen can only blame me. It took a decade for that crime and that awful crime against people's souls to come out. That's what the British press were doing. So, Mm. of course, this business about, you know, what one part of the royal family is doing. It's not clear who's got the agency because the queen, who is not criticized by anyone in this story, an old woman who, by the way, came to the throne as a spare. She's the daughter of a spare. That's the irony here. Her uncle was the king he went with an american this back to my business earlier we'd like to blame you her (laughs) father had to come in so everyone the queen was a was a queen because she was a spare she's not criticized and she took away some of harry's royal privileges because she'd been brought up to understand there are bits you have and bits you don't but in the middle of all this book comes is it clear that william and harry themselves even know who committed the crimes against each other And I'm, I'm someone who's, who's forced to look at my country. I've been in the White House. I used as an intern in DC, when I listened for the first time to WAMU, I used to give tours of Congress. I love that building, but I've never been in Buckingham Palace. I'm 56. So this shines a light on my country. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But it shines a light on both our countries, and our mutual obsession, one with the other. And when you say to me, I don't know what a courtier does, just give it another name, because there are millions of people in America who are courtiers to celebrities, and your celebrity culture is as toxic as ours.
0: That makes a lot of sense. call them aides and personal assistants and all sorts of other things. We got this message from Jeff in Tampa, Florida.
2: I've actually never really been fascinated with the royal family it didn't seem to matter to me um, however this year with why well, I should say last year hearing about Harry and Meghan leaving the royal family and it causing a lot of controversy I really found the stories quite disturbing about uh, the royal palace leaking stories to the British press and just how um, just how morally corrupt the British press has seemed with this whole thing.
0: We got this message from Laura. I admit that I was one of the first in line to grab the book when it became available and I stayed up until 3.30 in the morning reading. I was going into it looking for some good stories, maybe some gossip, and I came away extremely moved by the book and feeling like I just wanted to give him a hug. Similar thoughts from Julie, who tweets, I'm halfway through this book and feel so incredibly sad for him. It seems Harry has been aching to tell his own story his whole life. The British press has created the narrative of his life, and now it's his turn to actually tell the truth. Patty, I want to go back to you quickly on that. Um, Obviously, his mother, Princess Diana, uh, had her own very difficult relationship with the press, as we've talked about. She was outspoken about her mistreatment. How do you think Harry was inspired by his mother, quickly, in about 30 seconds or so?
2: Yes, of course. And, and the time is tight. So I don't know. I've, I've never met him. I was at his wedding. I saw him come down the high street in Windsor. I saw thousands of British people wishing Harry and Meghan well in their carriage. I saw that. I was there. And I don't know that anyone else on this panel was. The British people wanted it to work. The royal family wanted it to work. And Harry himself wanted it to work. Mm. We know that it didn't work. And this book is his effort to tell us why. And we should listen. And as a country in the UK, I would like to be one of those people who tried to understand.
0: That's Patty O'Connell, host at the BBC. We also heard from Constance Grady at Vox. And Kristen Meinzer, host of The Royal Report from Newsweek. Thanks to all of you. Today's show was produced by Arfi Getty and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU and is distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, sitting in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. You're listening to 1A.